How long does this uh, product uh, last, you know, once it's injected into the subsurface? Yeah, it's going to stay where you inject it pretty much too. It's not going to be traveling very far. And, uh, but it, it's going to be effective for at least a couple of years, I would think. Um, but actually, <clears throat> we've never had to repeat an injection, all right, in 20 years. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at www.seankgrady.com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady, and today's guests are Elliot Cooper from Cascade Environmental, Dr. Bradley Droy from T, and, and Craig Bruno from Landmark Environmental. And we're going to talk about in-situ chemistry evaluations and the selection process. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is good. Well, you know, I'm glad we had this panel discussion going on today. You know, guys, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of talk in the industry about how do we do remediation in a more sustainable way. In situ is is one big uh, way to do it. And what he wanted to talk about is what really goes on in bringing new chemical amendments to the market and what that journey looks like for you know uh, manufacturers and for. Uh, contractors who uh, actually, you know, are using this product and, you know, the, the consultants who are actually, you know, evaluating these options and selecting them for remedies. So guys, let's, let's dive in. Um, I'll let you guys talk a little bit about yourself, but, you know, Brad, if you could, you know, you're from T, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, your company, what services you offer, give the listeners a little bit of background on who you are and what you guys do. Yes. Thank you, Sean. Uh, yeah. TEA, uh, it, stands for uh, Toxicological and Environmental Associates. Uh, we were, uh, we, I co-founded the, the firm back in 1996, and we were always looking for ways uh, in which to combine uh, risk assessment and remediation together. Mm -hmm. uh, so risk-based remediation. In those days, uh, the risk assessment rules were, were in full bore, and, uh, and also the, there was a uh, explosion of in-situ remedial technologies uh, that were really just starting. And in fact, uh, if you think back 26, 27 years ago, when we co-founded, uh, I co-founded the company, you know, bioremediation was kind of an, a, a newbie, if you will. 
And so uh, natural attenuation was uh, was on the scene, but but really our our, our understanding of, of bio, especially the bioremediation of chlorinated solvents, was mm-hmm. uh, was uh, in its infancy. And uh, so some of my clients that when we first started the company, uh, they were uh, chlorinated solvent manufacturers, and so they had a, a great interest in that. So the types of uh, products you guys are manufacturing is uh, easy VI is one called. It's the emulsified zero valent iron. Is that correct? That's correct. That was a NASA patent in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that particular product, I was at a conference in Orlando. I think it was in 2003 is the off-year Battelle conference. And Dr. Jackie Quinn, who was the inventor of the, of the technology, uh, along with uh, Dr. Sherry Yastrzewski from University of Central Florida. They invited me out for a test observation out at NASA Kennedy. And uh, so we we actually then worked with them to become a licensee of the technology. Uh, and uh, we've been manufacturing uh, EZVI ever since. So what are the target compounds the EZVI really is, is successful at attacking and breaking down? Uh, primarily, it's designed for a source area treatment for chlorinated solvents. Uh, we've also seen it successful uh, with brominated solvents as well as uh, uh, chlorofluorocarbons like uh, freons and also carbon disulfide. Uh, we've we found it to be very effective. So, but it's primarily designed for those uh, particular compounds uh, in source areas. Okay, that sounds good. Um, you know, as a manufacturer of uh, source kill technology, what's your evaluation process? for adopting this type of chemistry when you're, you know, evaluating, you know, do I want to manufacture this type of material? Yes. Source kill, you mentioned it. That's our brand name for the emulsified zero valent iron. So yes, when when we're looking at a particular site, you know, this, this product may not be the uh, product for every site, every chlorinated solvent site. There's a a lot of uh, very good products out there and, I know Elliot uh, will be talking about uh, one in particular that can be used in other aspects of the of the in situ remediation with chlorinated solvents. So we'll we'll look at um, also a site. We we, we want to make sure that the source areas have been clearly defined using uh, some of these uh, uh, surgical techniques that can identify where those sources are. And uh, again, Cascade does some of that uh, as well. And we work with companies like them to help us uh, uh, clear, clearly define the problem, including the source area. So, so uh, Brad, what type of research do you guys do to evaluate, you know, like bench scale studies, things like that, that you go through to, you know, evaluate the product, whether or not it's, it's going to be a commercially viable product? Yes. Initially, um, you know, what we were wanting to do with this this particular product, the emulsified zero valent iron, it's fairly viscous. So we wanted to make sure it's going to be uh, compatible in different lithologies from an injection perspective, right? So can you deliver the product effectively to its target, all right? And, I mean, we, we know that the chemistry works. We've done multiple bench scale studies, and so has the University of Central Florida and, and NASA in the past with a variety of compounds. So the so the chemistry works. Um, so the key w- would have been to demonstrate effectively that you can deliver it. And uh, so far, so good in our applications. We, you know, we've been able to be blessed with working with uh, uh, 
some excellent injection companies you know, like Cascade again. <laughs> I'm doing an advertisement for Cascade. But uh, anyway, uh, but they do a very good job with this, uh, uh, with this, uh, uh, with this material. But you know, over the years, though, we've also improved it. Uh, we've made it now where it's it's about it has about half the viscosity of the original formulas, okay, and about and about four times the reactivity as we've as we've uh, become uh, more familiar with different types of iron to use uh-huh. and, and making stable. Uh, emulsions that can be delivered effectively. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, I mean, uh, from Craig, you're, you're, you're the remediation consultant here. So let's, let's dive, let's have you dive in here because, you know, I've, I've done quite a few evaluations and, and, you know, injected EOS and other, you know, chemox type uh, chemistries and, and remediation projects in my past. But, you know, from your perspective as a consultant, you know, what are ways you're always evaluating or how are you evaluating these types of chemistries for your, you know, addressing your groundwater contaminated sites, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, what it really comes down to, you know, uh, I come from a somewhat uh, different perspective than, uh, uh, than, than uh, a lot of uh, people in the industry, you know, I, I'm the end user basically of these products. Yeah. And, uh, it's very competitive uh, environment. So my job really as a consultant is to evaluate the problem, uh, figure out um, the most effective, uh, least expensive, uh, most sustainable uh, solution to the problems. And uh, uh, as time goes on, you know, these, the, the different products uh, change and uh, really on a uh, project by project specific basis, um, you almost surgically can pick a, a particular product for an exact uh, an exact need, you know, whether it be uh, fast flowing groundwater, um, uh, depth to groundwater, ability to uh, to inject the um, um, concentration of the contaminants of concern, uh, and so on and so on. Um, time frame is another key, you know, factor. Um, and some of these are products more aggressive than others. If you have uh, 20 years, you can you can do something uh, very very basic and very naturally, even and can can avoid uh, um, anything aggressive uh, whatsoever. So it's really just uh, take it on a site by site basis and uh, um, and keep on checking what's out there. Um, and just keep on evaluating evaluating the problem at hand and figure out way, new ways to uh, solve the solution. So, so uh, Craig, I mean, I know like when you're going through an assessment of a site and, and their characteristics, I mean, you're really getting to the hydrogeology, you know, aspects of these sites and the geology functionality of, you know, are there enough, what's the core space? How much can I really pump? I mean, aren't you doing pump tests and things like that to really evaluate what is really going to be the best solution to eject along with the, the type of contaminants you're dr- trying to address? Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, um, on this uh, most recent project we did, we, we did a little pilot test because um, here we, we had uh, two potential challenges. It wasn't just the ability to inject. It was, um, uh, groundwater was was uh, pretty deep at this site, about 35, 40 feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in addition to selecting your remedial uh, technology in terms of product, you have to figure out how you're going to deliver that product. 
Um, and uh, using a geoprobe rig, many kinds of geology, you're not going to get to a depth of 40, you know, a total depth of 45 feet. Right. So we uh, ran a pilot test. Um, it was really a depth a depth test to, to make sure we could reach the depth. Um, we felt real confident um, that the, uh, the product would work and, and the geology uh, was very friendly to uh to the injection but um the main concern was can we can we deliver it right right now that makes sense today's episode is sponsored by cascade environmental the only field services contractor with the experts and equipment to support you from project conception to completion in addition to the drilling and site characterization services that Cascade is known for, they also offer turnkey in-situ remediation services that include a line of injectable amendments that target tough contaminants like DNAPL, chlorinated solvents, TPH, PEAHs, and PCBs. To learn more about their in-situ remediation services and their line of injectable chemistries, check out their website at www.cascade-env.com forward slash remediation. Contact Cascade to help you start cleaning up your site today. Ellie, I'm bring you into this conversation. You know, as, as being, you know, Cascade's one of the leading in situ remediation contractors out there in the country. Why, why has, you know, Cascade decided to get into the, you know, the chemistry industry or the chemistry business, should I say, you know, you, you're the, uh, the delivery system uh, people, but you're also now, you know, in the business of actually, you know, marketing, selling chemistries as well. So talk a little bit about how you've done that and developed that or adopted that approach. Yeah, well, uh, we, we did it for two reasons. One, uh, we saw a lot of our clients uh, going with traditional approaches uh, and chemistries that weren't uh, getting them to the finish line. So we, we definitely wanted to help our clients out. And then secondly, we did it from a competitive standpoint. A lot of uh, reagent vendors in the space uh, started to get involved in the injection uh, uh, piece and starting to take away our market share. So uh, it's really a function of both. Uh, we want to be able to compete, uh, retain and grow our market share. And we all also want to help our customers out. Well, how have you gone about selecting the, the chemistries that you guys want to, you know, adopt as part of your, your list of, or your suite of chemistries you offer clients? Well, we have some detailed uh, criteria uh, that we went through. Uh, and I won't go through all of them, but one is we want to go after markets that are, are growing or still problematic. So that really fell into the uh, uh, solvent marketplace. Uh, and then we also wanted to uh, have something to apply to this new emerging market of uh, PFAS, which, by the way, EPA just proposed their formal regulation earlier. All that today. Uh, regulations and have established a PFO of PFAS uh, uh, limit of four parts per trillion, whatever that is. Uh, I know it's a low number. But <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we wanted to be able to play in that market. And uh, so we basically look at the markets and uh, uh, customer needs and where the growth was. And we decided that uh, we wanted technology for the PFAS market. We wanted technology for solvents and solvent source areas. And so 
we elected to go with a, a colloidal carbon product for for PFAS, PFAS. and then uh, for the source areas, uh, we decided to team with Brad for Dean Apple remediation, and then for traditional plumes and lower concentration source areas, uh, we went with a, an injectable zero valent iron. So, uh, and then we just wanted to make sure that we had persistent chemistries, because most of the uh, remediation projects uh, don't achieve uh, expectations is because the chemistries fizz out before all the mass, you know, mm -hmm. whatever yeah. phase uh, uh, equilibrates. So, so that was our criteria. We want something uh, uh, persistent, high residence time in an emerging market, and uh, you know, solve some of the biggest remediation needs that our customers have. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm assuming you guys also did a little bit of some, uh, I guess, treatability studies before you selected on one or another. I mean, you guys are the the geology experts with the, all your geoprobe and drilling capabilities. I mean, we, did you evaluate some of this before you said, okay, these are the ones we want to use? Well, with uh, Brad and and SourceScale, we didn't we didn't have to do that because uh, we had injected it before, and we were quite familiar with its uh, efficacy, and we saw a big opportunity to help. Uh, grow market share on that product. It, uh, despite, you know, being in business for 20 years, uh, there's a lot of turnover in the industry and we just felt a lot of folks weren't that familiar with uh, in situ's uh, Dean Apple treatment. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, that's, that's good. So, you know, Hey Brad, recently, you know, we've heard about the train spill in new Pat in East Palestine, you know, Ohio, based on, uh, you know, on reviewing a case study on the Cascades website, it sounds like you guys have have some similar experience. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on that? You want to talk a little bit about your you know experience of how it might this might be relevant to that type of scenario? Sure. Um, yes. Uh, several years ago, I guess back in around 2013 or so, we uh, uh, got had the opportunity to get involved with the Livingston, Louisiana uh, site, and that was. Uh, the site of a almost identical, it seemed like, uh, derailment uh, that just happened in East Palestine where they had cars of uh, vinyl chloride, tanker cars of vinyl chloride being ignited and, uh, uh, and, a, and a, just a, many, many, many different types of chemicals, a hodgepodge of different chemicals. And also the derailment happening right in the middle of town, mm -hmm. in a small town, okay, a small blue collar, rural type town and uh so anyway um last week actually i was actually uh sought out by the local tv station there and i did a podcast last week on this it was unscripted um uh, total off totally off the cuff for 26 minutes right on the on the spot and uh, uh anyway uh you know that that particular situation we were able to in in livingston we were able to close that site out, uh, working with a, an intergovernmental commission made up of the city of Livingston, the state Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, as well as the Illinois Central Railroad. And uh, uh, we were able to close that site within a couple of years using uh, our a combination of toxicology risk assessment and, and uh, source kill, as well as some other carbon sources and bioaugmentation cultures. So, um, so they were running out of money and uh, we were able to close it and they were, they had several million dollars that they could, they could use them for the community. So it was a great success story. And I was, I was hoping that something similar could be done 
for the folks of East Palestine. Well, you never know. It's, it's still probably a, a potential. I mean, there seems to be a lot of contamination there, although I think they are digging and hauling a bunch of uh, waste as well to uh, a local landfill here in Indiana um, just to uh, kind of <laughs> remove some of the, the source. Right. It's been quite the controversy as well here. Uh, but uh uh, yeah, no, that, I mean, it sounds like there's going to be some long-term, you know, ramifications of the, 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 you know, material spilled there. That's probably leached to the groundwater. And, uh, so they won't be able to dig everything up, I'd imagine. Yeah. I, I looked at, I looked at the list. I forget everything that's listed in there, but there's uh, you know, vinyl chloride though, is actually a little bit lighter than water. Yeah. Uh, so it's got a specific gravity of about 0. 0.9, 0. 0.92 or so. So Water is 1.0, so it's not the typical sinker like you have with chlorinated solvents. So, um, so the you know, but it, it still can get down into the aquifer fairly quickly because vinyl chloride. I think there were five or six tanker cars full of that material. Uh, that uh, chlorinated solvent happens to be more water soluble than some of the other chlorinated solvents as well. Yeah. So it could it could travel faster. Uh, and, and then also when they when they uh, burned it, you know some of the some of the breakdown products like acrolein and things of that nature, those can be formed. Um, not sure about the physical chemistry of, of those uh, breakdown products, but there's a. I think they're in for a long haul. There, this is something that's not going to get cleaned up in a couple of weeks. It's, we're looking at years down the yeah. road. Yeah, uh, for, absolutely. For remediating that site. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I mean, usually when you, uh, start one of those types of projects or any of these types of projects that have, you know, significant, uh, you know, uh, source and you know, source material in, in the subsurface, it does take a long time. Um, Craig, you know, as, as a consultant here, uh, and, you know, basically having a bit of your, uh, core services around remediation consulting, talk about what clients are looking for now. I mean, how, you know, a lot of these clients I think are looking can I get, how fast can I remediate or, you know, what can I do from a more sustainable approach instead of some active pump and treat scenarios? Talk, talk about what you're seeing right now in, in the industry. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. You know, again, a lot of this, it's about competition in the market and changing market conditions. Um, this um, recent project that uh, Landmark worked on with, with Cascade, um, which was a really good, uh, success um it's a good example of all the how all the different parts kind of come together and um and the key word is faster you know and 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 why why is that the key word in this case we happen to be working with a large uh, property development um company who owned a property that's that had been uh under remediation for almost 17 years and uh, we were able to get uh, some amount of this site to residential uh, land use standards. Um, but there's a little pocket of groundwater, little residual that popped up. Um, and uh, of course, I called up uh, Elliot over at Cascade. And we've got, I don't know, 20 some odd years experience kind of working these things together. Um, and. Uh, we knew that we had to do something fast and aggressive. Um, one of the reasons was there were so many shareholders, uh, stakeholders, everybody was motivated to have this just be done. 
and then think about the other motivating factors. We have um, 10, 15 acres that are available for residential development right at the time when uh, uh, property uh, values are going down and interest rates are going up. So we need to start the building process sooner, much sooner <clears throat> than any later. Yeah. So, you know, in this particular case, uh, we just kind of uh, determine the feasibility of, of a couple different uh, options and um, weigh costs and and uh, degree of uh, confidence, if not degree of certainty, that that it would work. And uh, uh, pretty much came up with a with a six month plan, uh, which was. Uh, how it was sold to the to the that client. That's pretty aggressive, right? That's pretty aggressive to you know you know knock down the source to uh, residential levels that fast. That, that you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, and and not just aggressive, but you have to be not only uh, you have to be very 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 confident in the outcome to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean. If you're listening to this podcast, I'll bet you may be thinking, how can I level up and advance my career? If you want to get that promotion, increase your regulatory knowledge, gain professional recognition, and earn more money, then it's time to obtain an industry credential from the Institute of Hazardous Material Management. The IHMM offers eight credentials that are ANSI approved for students, experienced, skilled employees without a degree, and for the degreed professional looking to set themselves apart from the pack. Their credentials focus on three main areas, Certified Hazardous Material Manager, the CHMM, the Certified Dangerous Goods Professional, the CDGP, and the Certified Safety and Health Manager, the CSHM. If you become an IHMM credentialed professional, then you will be in the top 1% of your profession and your credential will have a global reach. Check out their programs they offer at www.ihmm.org. That's www.ihmm.org. What are you waiting for? Get started today. Talk a little bit about, you know, how you, you know, address setting client expectations and trying to meet them, you know, when you approach them with these remedial strategies. Yeah, well, that was sort of the process that I was uh, talking about is uh, you kind of step back and say, what what is possible um, within, you know, certain financial constraints, of course, and very stringent time constraints. And, uh, and you just uh, look at what conditions you have, what you have to work with, um, and look at different, different products, uh, different technologies, different options, yeah. um, and likelihood of success. And, uh, and pretty much uh, brainstorm with the, with the right person, people, group of people. Um, you get your confidence level up to 95% plus then uh, uh, it's usually uh, pretty, you can, uh, it's a pretty easy sell, Yeah. Um, but uh, got to deliver. Yeah, you do. I mean, you know, if you could real quick before we uh, move on to the next question, but talk about how important it is to have that, um, that, uh, I guess, uh, that contractor slash consultant relationship, you know, having your go-to, you know, person that, you know, you can rely on when you're designing these remedies. Um, I know in my past in that position, 
you, you know, sometimes you've got contractors that perform great. Other times contractors don't perform great. And, you know, when you're the guy that's, um, you know, facing the client can be a challenge, can it? So talk about the relationship with, and that trust you build with them. Yeah. Um, brings up, you know, coins, the old, the old phrase, uh, got to use the right tool for the job. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Elliot, that's, that's not a reference of you being the tool, but that's kind of, uh, yeah. cold <laughs> you did catch on to that. Well, I could, I could jump in. I could, I could jump in on that real quick. I, uh, yeah. I had a re recent example of this, um, in the field, um, in Florida here. And, uh, you know, you, you never know what you're going to get into when you get out there in the field and you got to trust your, your contractor, right. To be able to think on their feet and, and, uh, you know, Cascade did that really well for us. Uh, uh, when we encountered some problems like that, had to, had to really think on the, on the fly, right. And react. And, uh, and so that's, that's an important uh, part of this whole, situation is that yeah you have to have the right team together uh you have to really balance client expectations but let the client know that you're going to run into some it's always going to happen in the field right you're going to run into something and uh yeah. but but on the other hand on the back side we were able to negotiate with the with the regulators to change the course of action a little bit and make some adjustments and uh, so it's a, a total team effort when you get get there with your client the regulators uh, the, uh, the contractors uh, Absolutely. that you all have in place, as well as the products that you're using. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it is critical to, you know, that the teamwork, when, when you find the right, um, the right people, especially, for, you know, uh, people in certain niches. And when uh, you've been in this industry for a while, as, as, as all of us have, um, you know, you know the people that you that you need to hold on to, and and at the end of the day, those those are the ones where when you're in a really tough spot. You, you pull out the pull out all the the right people and and uh, and get the right heads together and get it done. I gotta I gotta imagine from like Elliot in your position, you know, they come to you and hey, I'm in a crisis. What can you do, man? I need your help, brother. You know. Usually if you've got some experience working with somebody like that and, and it's always been good and positive and, and, you know, you've had some success, you're probably more willing to jump, you know, hoops and respond quicker, or at least, you know, meet the, you know, the bell, you know, so to speak, than, than other, other people that are just new to you. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you know, my <clears throat> perspective has always been, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, always propose what I think is the best solution and not, uh, and, and, you know, face reality. So, uh, uh, so that's always been critical to build confidence. And then, you know, the other piece of it is, <clears throat> you know, may, uh, assume that it's your money that's being spent. So that's a whole different perspective than spending the client's money. And so, you know, when we go into a project, uh, I mean, really, you know, we're part of the solution and, and we want to be the part that, you know, helps facilitate it. And, uh, and you know, if we have something that's not going to work or it's iffy or it's a, you know, a Hail Mary, you know, we'll, you know, sometimes uh, customers have to go that route just to keep the regulators happy. But yeah, yeah, I think it's just the transparent, open and honest relationship to get these things done. Well, so Elliot, what other technology advancements have you guys uh, at Cascade, you know, looked at that, you know, in, you know, in addition to say source kill and, you know, the, uh, 
I guess I uh, the EZVI and and other uh, you know what what other chemistries are you looking to you know address or attack you know solvent sites. <clears throat> Uh, so, uh, one of the things we're doing is we're looking at a combined remedy of, uh, of, uh, colloidal carbon with a, uh, with a reductant. Okay. So you know, there is some pushback about total sequestration of, uh, contaminants, although it's being done all over the U S and, and many sites have closed, but it's a le little, uh, easier, uh, cell where you can combine, uh, treatment with the uh, with the sequestration, and uh, and in some cases the carbon actually acts as an uh, a catalyst or an activator, so we are looking uh, for more dilute solvent areas to integrate uh, uh, reductive chemistries in with the carbon. Uh, we've also uh, uh, added some uh, proprietary patented uh, approaches to keep carbon in the injection zone. We work so hard to make it mobile and make it flow through the pore space that some cases it doesn't stop. And so we've got a, a access to a patented technology that allows us to drop out the carbon in the, uh, in the treatment areas. So uh, those two are uh, the ones we're looking at on the uh, carbon side. Uh, we're really not looking at anything else uh, related to the source kill. That's a, that's a well-proven uh, product, and one of the only ones that uh, has efficacy for Dean Apple outside of uh, you know the thermal remediation services that we provide. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then we're also looking at uh, trying to uh, move towards the source area of PFAS because those are going to be higher concentrations. And so we're at we're working with our carbon and oxidants and uh, uh, higher kinetics with low temperature heating to see if we can come up with a good solution for uh, PFAS treatment in source areas like, you know, underneath the triple A, triple F firefighting pit, something like that. But right now that's pretty much it. Uh, and we've got our hands full with those. I can tell you that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Hey Brad, I mean, you know, what type of challenges have you faced, you know, growing the universal, you know, source kill adoption of Dean Apple at sites, you know, I mean, is it is it the silver bullet for Dean Apple sites? And, and if it is, you know, what, what's the any challenges of, you know, getting it out there, that message out there to people? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, it's always been a source of my frustration through the years because, as, as uh, Elliot had just mentioned, it is very effective for these source areas. And really right when it was uh, patented, I think I believe the patent was in 2002 originally. And it just recently expired now in 2022. Um, but there were such a, a flux of products that hit the market. And I think that the end users could easily get confused with the multiple uh, products that were available to choose from. And, and every consultant would come along and tell them one thing and another and another and another. And, and so... What, what got lost in the shuffle, I think, was this emulsified zero valent iron. It, it's actually a hydrophobic chemistry compared to many others that were more hydrophilic and water loving in their in their approaches. So the EZVI, the source kill, behaves like a Dean Apple. It's got a specific gravity of about 1.08. So when you inject it, it's, it's heavier than water. And it also 
is very effective at, at promoting the desorption of the of the contaminant from the clay matrices as well. So you're not going to see perhaps the the rebound uh, that you can see with some of these other uh, types of materials that are injected, especially oxidants in source areas uh, that you might have to go apply cases, but you may have to. Um, so it would overcome those sorts of of uh, concerns as well as uh, uh, pH concerns. Uh, what we're also looking at doing is slipstreaming in bioaugmentation cultures with it to help clean up and polish because the 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 uh, source skill itself is is really uh, iron, zero valent iron, uh, vegetable oil, water, and a surfactant. And so it's uh, it's very green, if you will, uh, very green technology. And uh, it uh, uh, with the vegetable oil, that's a lot of carbon that you're putting into the ground. So you want to utilize that carbon as well over time. So the bacteria can benefit from the presence of that extra uh, organic carbon that you're delivering. So you can actually get a both an abiotic reaction and a biotic reaction uh, from that injection. So like a double whammy, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, so it's, a lot of it's just like getting the word out, talking about the, the functionality and, and how the, the, you know, source kill actually works. So you break down how this material actually, you know, remediates the actual, you know, DNAPL in, in the, in the, uh, subsurface. Uh, and then just communicating and then showing results of how it's really effectively, you know, done that. I'm assuming that's a lot of the challenges that you're trying to communicate to, you know, with case studies and things like that to get that word out there. Yes. The, this is really the reason why we changed the name from easy VI, if you will, to source kill. Okay. Yeah. So it's a great, because, great name. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I, I thought of that, by the way, I just, <laughs> I came up with it in the middle of the night or something. <laughs> you woke up uh, like, I got it. <laughs> I got it. Ding, you know, source kill. Well, that's what we're doing. And, uh, but, you know, the products and where the confusion is, is with this term ZVI, you got EZVI. Well, the, everybody's thinking ZVI. Well, this is not necessarily true because it's encapsulated inside of a micelle and, uh, and it's it, it kind of protect is protected from reacting with everything and its brother once you inject it, right? So when it becomes in contact with the chlorinated solvent, it kind of, uh, there's there's a dissolution uh, reaction that, that happens just physically, where then the chlorinated solvent is exposed to the iron and it can't escape. Uh -huh. So then you have that beta elimination reaction that's gonna happen abiotically and uh, where you're gonna get the, uh, the cleaving of the chlorine atoms off of your compounds. How long does this uh, product uh, last, you know, once it's injected into the subsurface? Yeah, it's going to stay where you inject it pretty much too. It's not going to be traveling very far. And, uh, but it, it's going to be effective for at least a couple of years, I would think. Okay. Um, but actually <clears throat> we've never had to repeat an injection. All right. In 20 years. Uh, one of our first, largest injections that, that we did was at Patrick Air Force Base in, in Florida in a 62,000 gallon injection. And uh, it was designed for two injections, but we only had to do one. It was done. 
So you guys basically, you know, inject this the material, kind of create a passive barrier wall for the groundwater to flow through it, and it's breaking down the chemical the chemicals that way. Is that kind of the the, the, the picture here? Yeah, we we target a minimum of ten percent of the pore space, so you're still going to get water flow through the through the site. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Anything over twenty percent pore space is not necessary. In fact, I think Patrick was a 25% pore space injection. That's probably why we only needed one injection at that site because we put a lot down there. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, that's right. It, it, it kind of, uh, it's almost like a, a passive uh, reactive barrier, if you will. It creates a biologically reactive and an abiotically reactive zone in the, in the groundwater. Gotcha. This episode is sponsored by PACE, people advancing science to protect our environment and improve our health. PACE provides an unmatched depth and breadth of testing and analytical capabilities along with professional services for your in-house lab needs. They have the expertise, capacity, and delivery infrastructure to provide the certified results you require when and where you need them. With over 40 years of innovation, more than 500 certifications and accreditations, PACE is serving customers through over 100 lab and service center locations with mobile lab, on-site, and emergency response service options available. At PACE, they honor their commitments so you can honor yours. The next time you are presented with an environmental testing and analytical needs, turn to PACE. To learn more, go to www.pacelabs.com. That's www.pacelabs.com. Say, Craig, you know, when you look at uh, trying to grow your your remediation business, I mean, you know, how important is it to, you know, have some case studies or some good project examples where you're, you know, you can point to in situ, you know, sustainable remediation projects to help, you know, convince clients that you're working with that, you know, you've got the experience and you've, you've got, you know, you know how to do this. Yeah, the, the past past successes uh, are, are really the key. Uh, there's there's almost no other way to sell it. Um, you know, you can sell it in theory, but uh, if you have a track record of successful projects, um, it's what it comes down to is um, um, best results, lowest cost, and shortest time. But if you can if you can get those results um, again and again and again, and have a resume behind it. Uh, and you have that level of confidence in yourself, your team, and uh, and your uh, your clients ultimately will will get that uh, uh, same sense of confidence and uh, and uh, take you up on you know believe your credibility and and uh, and uh, more often than not get the job even if it's something a little outside the box as as far as they're concerned from where, where they're coming from. But uh, you can uh, convince. Uh, people uh, for, for their own good of things that uh, that they may not have thought of <clears throat> um, before and uh, but you have to you have to have a resume showing that it works and how it works and how well it worked and why it'll work again yeah I gotta imagine most clients these days they're really not looking at you know active systems anymore to address groundwater contamination <clears throat> contamination like you know um, you know, SVE wells or, or, you know, pumping treats or even source, you know, dig and haul type. They, they really are looking for this in situ strategy, aren't they? Is that the, really the main focus these days? Yeah, it's all about innovation because, um, and one of the main drivers, of course, is, is cost. Um, um, 
installing a, a pump and treat system, maintaining a pump and treat system, the cost of uh, electricity for running a pump and treat system, the chemicals, the you know the price for the chemicals for for treating the uh, the groundwater, the waste, example. the waste. It yeah. just goes on and on and on. Yeah, you know the whole exactly. the whole uh, the whole uh, process from top to bottom, um, and uh, and construction and materials um sure and the more innovative you can get and sustainable um the better uh, yeah it, it brings costs down and uh, uh you know one of the great benefits of these institute technologies especially when conditions are just right is they they become self-perpetuating for a very very long time yeah um, i think one of the first ones that uh Elliot and I did together many years ago. We got, uh, I think, six years out of uh, one pretty inexpensive injection. So, That's awesome. So, yeah, and and that also shut down a pump and treat system. So, uh, big cost so, savings. Yeah, huge. Yeah. And I got to imagine, I mean, I'm, I mean, that's when you're trying to convince a, a client of, you know, what the value and the benefits are of, of in situ versus these actives, <clears throat> you know, the ROI and the cost savings associated with everything else is, it's pretty, probably pretty easy to demonstrate uh, for them to convince them to go that route. Um, and I know regulators are looking for that as well. Regulators are really, you know, driving, uh, you know, these types of alternatives versus uh, active things. Um, so, um that's good. To, that's good to know. Um, you know, Brad, I guess, Elliot, I mean, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about this, but you know, what challenges have you guys experienced, you know, since COVID? I mean, the supply chain of getting products, you know, did you, did you have any problems getting you know products manufactured or, or del delivered to customers? You know, any pricing challenges with that because of COVID? Oh yeah. All kinds. <clears throat> so every, every, everything that was an ingredient or a process, everything would slow down and then uh, trying to get a handle on transportation costs was another unknown where, you know, somebody's asking for a, a bid and uh, they want the transportation cost. And, you know, that was all over the map. So uh, things are settling down, you know, Brad and I saw specific uh, 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 supply chain issues related to zero valent iron, you know, one of the ingredients, uh, so yeah, COVID had a significant impact, and uh, it's not over yet. But uh, I think the market and the uh, the industry is uh, right now realizing a pretty significant increase in uh, amendment costs for in situ remediation from COVID. Brett, yeah, I um, yeah I had a, a real concern with the surfactant for whatever reason. I mean that that is a small component of our our product, but. Gosh, trying to secure surfactant was a nightmare. Yeah, and especially we had a big project with uh, with Elliot uh, rolling, and and uh, you know where is this? Where are we going to get this? And well, we were able to get it, but uh, it was we had to you know spend more for it. Um, and yeah. then the shipping costs, of course, you know the then you had the the cost of diesel going up off the roof, right? And and what the heck is going on there? So, you know, you're trying to, you're bidding the job, what, six months before? And then yeah, right you now you got to adjust pricing and say, hey, client, uh, we, we no, got to, this isn't right. Man, we can't, yeah, we can't oh, take on okay. this job. Yeah, that guy's rich. He can handle it. You know, he, you know, it's not true. It's yeah. we're, our margins are not that great. And, uh, 
And uh, so we're, I can't imagine what these uh, restaurants are doing, right? And how they're, sure. you know, they're selling eggs, right? And, uh, you know, omelets, you know, forget it. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it, we, it was, it's still there. Um, you kind of get, it's kind of a new normal now, isn't it? Everybody's used to putting that $3.50 gas in their cars again, right? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, imagine like that. The scenario with the, um, you know, if, if we were doing something like installing a pump and treat system rather than its in situ uh, solution, you know, the supply chain issues that hit you there when you need PLCs and all kinds of computer electronics and and this stuff where, you know, uh, yeah, well, we can order it. Uh, it'll be in in uh, 12 to 15 months. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hit other, it's hit the industry hard, not just, uh, you know, the in-situ uh, product market. So, so I guess this is a question for Brad and you guys again. What, how are you guys differentiating your chemistries to customers from any other competing product that, that may have similar claims, you know, that the, it's just as good or it, you know, does these things. I mean, what's, what's the um, differentiator here for you guys? Well, you know, one is, I mean, obviously there's technical differentiators and we can, we can debate those all the time, but, you know, obviously we think there's some technical advantages. Uh, the other one for us is transparency. So we're not into the black box uh, kind of here, take this and it'll work. So we, we, we like to be very transparent on design and work with the design with our customers. So I think that's a big difference. And then the ability to, to, for us to offer them in a turnkey fashion. So, uh, you know, we're not only selling the chemistry, but we're helping characterize the site and we're also helping uh, inject it through, you know, different technology. So that's pretty much uh, our value proposition to the industry. Yeah. Any 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 guarantees you guys throw out there for you know source remediation with the the products that uh, I've heard other chemistry companies to kind of guarantee things. I mean, is there anything you guys go to that extent? Well, I just wrote a blog today on guarantees that we're going to post on our website. So okay, a little good timing here. <laughs> you'll want to read that because uh, I opine on you know. Uh, remediation guarantees and are they worth the uh the cost so i'll, I'll save that answer for later okay uh, good I'll, 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 have to read, I'll have to read that because when i when i'm asked that question i always give the same answer I, no i don't guarantee <laughs> it i don't guarantee it but then i'll follow it up and say but um yeah this product has never failed in its application all right to date okay so in fact, that was enough for the mayor of Livingston, Louisiana, when he asked me that question. He said, "Brad, you gonna you gonna guarantee this for me? You know that we can get this done?" And I said, "No." And I think what that does, and it kind of is a follow up to Elliot's answer, you get you you, you got to build that trust, right? Yeah. Uh, with your client, and 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 we don't just use source kill. Uh, you know, we use a variety of products in our sites on our sites and. And, uh, you know, if, if source kills the right product, we'll use it, of course, but, but we're not going to push that down everyone's throat. As a follow up, uh, you know, kind of like, what, what do you guys see, uh, uh this infrastructure, uh, funding, you know, that's coming down to the Biden administration, how, how do you see that impacting, you know, your companies with, uh, you know, addressing these types of opportunities you know it's a little unclear uh 
you know, a lot of it's going to uh, upgrading wastewater treatment facilities and upgrading water treatment uh, for PFAS and, you know, uh, 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 abandoning orphan oil and gas wells and replacing uh, lead pipes. Uh, and a lot of it's been uh, targeted towards brownfield reme remediation. Uh, but right now, uh, the biggest influence we've seen is, uh, uh, you know, continued investment in Superfund and a lot of Superfund sites moving that were dead in the water, especially mm -hmm. on the thermal remediation side. Uh, EPA really jumped on <clears throat> getting the uh, thermal projects that were, you know, on hold, getting those moving again. So for me right now, it's really been uh, the Superfund funding that's been the most influential. But we'll see what happens, how that PFAS money is uh, doled out to, uh, to yeah different markets yeah i definitely think they need to uh, upgrade some uh, water treatment infrastructure to address these uh low level pfos uh concentrations that they're going to be expecting people to uh meet especially from communities that are exposed by pfos uh, uh you know contaminants in drinking water it's just uh sad to see some of these uh, communities uh, either knowingly or unknowingly being exposed to those uh chemicals and there's a lot of health effects associated with them. So, yeah, I just read an article today. Uh, <clears throat> some uh, uh, resident was complaining that she couldn't get any relief because she had uh, 6.9 parts per trillion of uh, PFAS in her groundwater, and the uh, standard in uh, in North Carolina was 10. So her neighbor two blocks away was getting all kinds of funding and assistance because she was at 10, but she couldn't get any because she was at 6.9. But I think she'll be happy now because EPA just proposed four. So <laughs> we'll see where that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's sad is when you see, uh, you know, public utilities having to spend all this money to address these PFAS, uh, you know, treatment requirements, and then passing those costs on to residents who had nothing to do with the PFAS contamination to begin with. And they're, they're the ones, you know, having to foot the bill when the, you know, the polluters are, are not really being held accountable to the extent that needs to be, it seems like in a lot of cases uh, to uh, address these uh, treatment facilities uh, for these communities. I just, it drives me crazy when I see that. Yeah. Well, I see, think some of the funding is going to alleviate some of that taxpayer burden, but eventually uh, you know, some of it does roll down to the, uh, taxpayer. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Hey guys, this has been really good. I'm really glad you guys came on the show today. I think there was a lot we covered on, you know, in situ, uh, sustainable remediation, uh, technologies, uh, looks like this source kill is a really great product. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, having good proper site characterization and, and, uh, evaluation of alternatives is great. And you got to have a partner to actually get it into the area, which is, you know, Cascades got the capabilities to do that injection. Really appreciate you guys come on the show to talk about this today. So, um, you know, we'll get this out to the listeners and, you know, feel free to share in your social media networks and, and, and whatnot. And uh, for those listening today, anyone who goes up on my website and signs up uh, for our email distribution, um, you know, I'm going to pick a lucky winner to receive a free uh, environmental transformation T-shirt. So, uh, you know, so anybody who listens to this, uh, feel free to sign up and uh, next week I'll pick a winner and then we'll announce on the next show. 
Well, for now, thanks for listening, guys. Really appreciate you all coming on the show. Yeah, thank thanks you. for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, thank you guys. Thank you, Fred. I want to thank our guest, Elliot Cooper of Cascade Environmental, Bradley Droy of T Environmental Solutions, and Craig Bruno from Landmark Environmental for coming onto the show today. If you have questions about in-situ remedial chemical amendments, and if they'd be a good fit for your project, you can connect with them through LinkedIn, or you can go to my website where I will have all their contact information for you. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on all the major podcast networks or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. And remember, don't forget to follow us. And if you would leave a review, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe to my channel as well. Thanks for listening, and until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today.